wonderful music this morning. Thank you all. Please join with me as we turn to Matthew chapter 21, found page 955 in your hymn Bible. See if you can beat me to it. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read the uh, first 11 verses here. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God. May we have the ears to hear it. and May God's blessing be added to it. There's a little girl who was sent out to run some errands. And she came back to her house and she barged in and said, Mom, Mom, I just saw Satan's funeral. Her mom wasn't really sure that she heard that right. She said, you saw what? I saw Satan's funeral. And the mom said, well, I'm going to need some explanation there, young lady. And, and the girl said, well, I'm standing on the side of the road and there was a funeral wagon that came along. And then there was a whole bunch of cars after that. And I was standing there watching all that. And a guy standing next to me said, the poor devil was only sick for a week. (laughs) Misunderstandings. Misunderstandings are so prevalent in our lives. Do you hate being misunderstood? Oh, Oh, yes, we all do. Sometimes misunderstandings can be really funny. They can be amusing or we can laugh at them later. Sometimes misunderstandings can be tragic and lead us to all sorts of issues. But there was no one quite as misunderstood in, as Jesus. When we, today, as we gather together to celebrate Palm Sunday, this festive processional that we just had that marked Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem, we also mark a time where there is no end to the misunderstanding of our Lord and Savior. You see, God's salvation had just arrived to Jerusalem to fulfill its penultimate mission, which was to die on the cross as an atonement for our sins. Yet everybody in that crowd, the crowd that we read about today, was expecting something completely different. And from that misunderstanding led to the entirely ugly events that would happen less than a week later. So today I want us to dig into Matthew's account here in chapter 21 of this triumphal entry to get a glimpse of the scope of God's salvation that was for the people and also was for us. Is anybody here familiar, if you think all the way back to your English classes, I'm going to give you some nasty flashbacks today. 
Anybody familiar with the name Sir Walter Scott? Anybody had to endure some of his poems or, or enjoy some of his poems and maybe some of your poetry class? I was an English major, so we had a lot of poetry classes. Sir Walter Scott, if you don't know him, was one of the greatest literary figures in the British Empire in the 1800s. He wrote wonderful books, wonderful poems. In fact, was widely recognized as, as being head and, and shoulders above everybody else in the country. And then one day, a challenger appeared on the scene. Lord Byron came. And this, this guy appeared. Lord Byron started writing these poems that were just heralded everywhere as just magnificent sources of, of creative genius. In fact, even in the London paper, right there in, in the, the commentary section, somebody sent in an anonymous letter. And in this anonymous letter, it said, Lord Byron, his, poet, his poems are such undisputed works of genius that we as a country can no longer consider Sir Walter Scott the preeminent literary figure of our country. Lord Byron has now taken that over. It was discovered years later that the author of that letter was Sir Walter Scott. That man showed some immense humility in his life, and I, I respect that. Humility does not come easy to us, doesn't it? especially today, as narcissism reigns supreme, as everything is about us and promoting ourselves, and we drink in all glory as well-deserved. But that always, that lack of humility keeps us in a sinful pattern in our lives, keeps us focused on ourselves. That's exactly what Satan wants us to do. Because when we're self-focused, we're not focusing on others, and we're not focusing on the Lord. Yet until his resurrection and ascension, Jesus is the main theme of Jesus' life was one of humility, of being a humble servant. Back at Christmas, you're very well aware that one of the major themes that pastors like to hammer home was how Jesus was born in very humble circumstances. Born in a stable, born in a manger, not born in a palace as a king should have been. But it didn't stop there. Jesus' entire life was dominated by a theme of humility. He lived as one of us, not as royalty. He suffered. He was rejected. He washed the disciples' feet. He served others. He put others first. He was always putting God above everything else of the Father. And that humility, that humble service, continued up through his death on the cross. So when this account begins today, as we look into this account in Matthew, it shouldn't really surprise us that when God's salvation appears on the scene to Jerusalem, it comes as a humble servant. Kings of that day, if you were a king and you were traveling from town to town, your preferred mode of transportation would be to be carried aloft on a very ornate and well-decorated, probably a shaded little canopy, and be held aloft by servants. And trumpets, trumpeters would come alongside of you, and you would be enjoying the finest fruits, and refreshing beverages, as many people would be carrying you along. Yet that's not Jesus. Jesus, the king of the universe. Look at how he travels here. He chooses to ride into Jerusalem on the Donkey Express. Now, I've never had the privilege of riding on a donkey. Has anybody here ever ridden on the back of a donkey? Well, okay, we need, we need to rectify that. I, I'm, I'm going to say that probably riding on the back of a donkey is not the most thrilling experience you'll ever have in your life. Now, I... I I wanted to lead the procession in here today on, on the back of a donkey, but one, the rental prices were out really high, and, 
And Session kind of shot that idea down, so here we are. But in any case, Jesus continues to humble himself in front of the people he came to save. Matthew is always very laser-focused on bridging the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's always pointing back to prophecies that said, you see, you see here, this is what was going to happen. We knew this was going to happen. So here, Matthew takes us all the way back to Zechariah 9.9. When that prophet foretold that your king is coming to you, he is just, he is having salvation, riding on the back of a donkey. Such a strange confluence of facts there. It's really bizarre that your salvation, the salvation that you long for, is going to come on the back of a donkey. I can only imagine people in the Old Testament reading that and going, what? What does that even mean? That a great, mighty great king that we're anticipating is going to make his entry on one of the lowliest and ugliest of creatures. It's the arrival of a king whose peaceful dominion would be, as Zechariah said, from sea to sea the whole world. God as a man is riding on this young donkey, is stooping so far beneath his station. Yet this is the depth of Jesus' love for you. That he has no dignity, he was not willing to give up in order to bring the message of salvation, the message of the gospel to your ears. He was willing to be undignified for you. As Jesus was jostling and bouncing along that road on the back of a donkey, His eyes were fixed on you. His mind was filled with concern for you. His heart was overflowing with love for you. As much as that day should have been all about Jesus, Jesus turned about and made it all about you. Philippians 2 reminds us us of this when it said that Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is why, as Jesus' followers today, we adopt his example of humility in our lives as we stay focused on God and we stay focused on others. In fact, it's a hallmark, it's a sign of a maturing Christian when you see somebody becoming less about themselves and more about others and God, you see that person starting to grow up as a Christ-like person. Only humility allows us to bridge that gap. When we're willing to sacrifice our own dignity, we're willing to do whatever it takes to be a humble servant of others and a humble servant of Christ. Now, Jesus' humble stance here didn't serve to damper the crowd's enthusiasm. As he rides down this road, large crowds come out to celebrate his arrival. So here's a question you may have never considered. Where did this crowd come from? This crowd that all of a sudden magically seemed to magically, spontaneously appear. Let me tell you, there is nothing spontaneous about this crowd appearing. This is a very deliberate campaign to put Jesus on the throne of the country. It's true. Back in John chapter 6, Jesus, you remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000? We all know that story very well. Do you know what happens immediately afterwards? The crowd is so taken with this miracle and so taken with Jesus that they go, this is the Messiah. And they try to take Jesus and force him to become king. Like they physically try to grab Jesus 
to yank him and drag him to Jerusalem to become king. And, the, and John tells us that Jesus actually slips away from the crowd and makes his escape there. And that mentality is exactly what is happening again on Palm Sunday, on this triumphal entry. This is an orchestrated crowd, probably a lot of Galileans coming down, who are once more trying to force Jesus to become the king that they want him to become. We see this in verse 9, if you look there, when the chants, the crowd starts chanting things, right? And this calls back to specific passages in the Old Testament. These aren't just made up on the spot. They're pointing back to the Old Testament here. First, we have, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. And that's all, Psalm 118 was all about the Messiah, where people were anticipating the arrival of a Savior. Then there's a mention of the Son of David, which is a point back to the Davidic covenant. When God promised King David, he said, there will be from your line a king who will come, be seated on the throne, and he will reign forever. And then finally, the crowd wants this to happen immediately. What's the one word that we associate with Palm Sunday? The word we chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us right now. There's an immediacy to Hosanna. Not save us when you get around to it. It's a right now. Make this happen. So they are processing in front of Jesus, behind Jesus, going, this is the Messiah, this is our King. King, save us now. Get in there. And they are hoping that this processional, no doubt, will go into Jerusalem and continue right to the palace and right up to the throne where they'll kick off the king and install Jesus right there. In fact, they're even treating Jesus as royalty. As Steve said earlier, that we're, they're laying down their cloaks, they're laying down the palm fronds, they're decorating the road as they would only do for a king. Of course, there is a big disconnect here between the type of savior this pushy crowd expects Jesus to be and the type of savior that Jesus is actually coming to be. You have to understand that these people have lived under oppression for a while now, that they've lived in an occupied country where their glory days as Israel, as a mighty nation ruling by itself, their glory days are long behind them. They exist now only in the history books, only in in memories passed on from generation to generation. And there's this hope that one day again Israel will rise. It will be great. And they're excited about it because they see suddenly this is our best prospect. This is the Messiah. And they think back to the greatest heroes of the ages, of Saul, of David, of even Joseph Maccabees. And they go, this is how we need to treat Jesus. They throw him a royal parade, and they hope that this is going to continue right to the throne. And the irony here is that if Jesus said yes, if Jesus had ridden that wave right into the palace, if he had become the kind of king that they wanted him to be, then none of them would have been saved for what awaited them in eternity. Let me ask you this. Consider you're on a cruise ship. And on this cruise ship, one night, you wake up and suddenly the room is tilting sharply over because you're in the middle of a storm. And the captain comes on the PA speaker and says, "Uh, folks, we have some bad news that we're taking on water. The ship is going down. Now, let me ask you this. What would be your primary concern at this juncture? Would you suddenly go, whoa, those, those paintings on the wall are crooked. I need to straighten those. 
I need to start moving my clothes because they're starting to get wet from the rising water, and I need to put them a little higher up. Maybe I'm, oh, man, I'm, I'm kind of hungry. I should probably order some room service to come down and, and feed me. And maybe I should call an electrician to, to deal with those flickering lights that are starting to go out. What's up with that? Is that what you, you would do, or would you be the first out of the line trampling your family in an attempt to get to a lifeboat as fast as you possibly can? You see, those problems of, of being hungry, of, of lights going off, of your clothes getting wet, those are irrelevant to the situation at hand. The situation is you are in grave peril. You need great salvation. You don't need an illusion of it. No, no you don't need an illusion that everything is fine in your cabin until the last possible moment. So when the crowds here are shouting, Hosanna, save us now to the son of David, what they are doing is begging for an illusion of salvation. They are asking for a lesser salvation for their country. Yet Jesus is not coming to rule in Jerusalem. This is why a week later the crowd has turned ugly against Jesus. That Jesus isn't doing what they want him to do. That he isn't being that kind of king. Instead, they start shouting the words that will shout on Good Friday, crucify him, crucify him. But before we get to that, we have to understand that what Jesus is coming here is not to rule, but to die. He is coming to this city because by his death is the only way for any of them, for any of us, to be saved at this greater peril that they're in of sin of eternal death, and of God's wrath. Sometimes we do this to God when we look to God for smaller measures of salvation in our lives, thinking that if God only does this one little thing or that one little thing in our life, then all will be well. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's okay to come to God with your request. He asks you to. He says, please come before me and bring your request. But don't let that be the only things you ever ask God for in your life. When your concern is only for smaller salvation, you lose sight of the importance and the impact that the great salvation has for the life you live now and the life to come. You see, you could have the worst things happen from today until the moment of your death, but if you are saved in Christ, then you are blessed beyond your wildest imagination. You are free from the bondage of your sin. You are forgiveness, forgiven from the judgment due to you for your past. You have the benefit of a personal relationship with your God. You have the daily assistance of the Spirit in your life. You have purpose in this life. You have assurance of a life to come, a life everlasting. That's immense. So don't mistake the crowd here. Don't make the mistake of the crowd here by thinking small. Think big with God and bigger still. So finally, with this uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, did not end at the palace. But instead, this is not really working today, is it? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Instead, Matthew completes this account by shifting his focus to how the crowd reacts to this parade coming in. The parade has not gone unnoticed. In fact, it's stirred up the city. The city's excited. The gossip train starts rumbling around and people go, who, who is this guy? Why is everybody really excited about him? And people who think they know Jesus say, well, don't you know who this is? This is the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I can only imagine at this point, this is using some speculation, but I don't think this is really that wild a speculation. 
that the Roman soldiers are looking at this crowd, and they have one hand on the hilt of their swords. They're on edge, fearing that this will be the spark that will set off the insurrection that they fear. They know the Jews really hate the Romans. They know they want a Messiah and a king to lead them. It makes me wonder if the political and religious rulers in Jerusalem were looking at this crowd, and they were getting disgruntled, going, who is this guy that gets all this praise when we should be the ones being being held up. Yes, it was a big deal to finally have a prophet after 400 years of silence from God, a real prophet from God come into Jerusalem. But even so, this shows a continued misunderstanding of who Christ is and what he can do. Even the disciples don't get it. John chapter 12 tells us it was only after Jesus was glorified in heaven did the light bulbs come on over their heads and they finally understood the symbolic act of a humble king coming to a sinful city to die for his people. Everybody here has mismatched expectations. The people, the Romans, the crowds, the Pharisees, everybody as to who Jesus was. It makes me think of that classic Abbott and Costello routine. You know that one, the who's on first, right? Where they talk about the funny names that baseball players had back in the days. And part of it goes like this. They go, well, well who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Okay, I've totally butchered that. Forgive me. Go check it out. YouTube or whatever. It's a hilarious skit. But it is a great example of how misunderstandings can cause people to be talking on two different levels. And that's why it's funny in that skit, but here with the story of Jesus, it's almost tragic. When God's salvation arrives here to Jerusalem, it was speaking to the people of their need, of their, the, speaking to them of their sin and of their need for a Savior. It was a wake-up call, a wake-up call to the people of their corrupted and broken life they'd been living and the fact that God's salvation was coming to provide a whole and healthy life as he was being coronated and ascending to the throne. It makes me also think about how we can be talking to God on a different level than how he is talking to us. You see, sometimes we're talking to God in our prayers, and we're trying to get God to see it from our side, trying to get God to do what we want him to do. Whereas God talks back to us through prayer and through the scriptures, It says, no, this is what my will is. This is what I want to do. This is what is a a good and right thing to have happen. Maybe a better thing than you could have possibly imagined. In our lives as Christians, we have the Bible to continually grow our understanding of God, of what he can do for us and what he requires of us. It's in this journey of faith that we're all on that these prayers, these Bible lessons, these sermons, the daily encounters with God reduces our misunderstandings of what God wants for us and what is right for us to be doing. After all, we don't get to fashion God after what we want him to be. That's called making an idol, and that's not God at all. Instead, we worship a God who wants us to be more like him every day and wants us to make every effort possible understand his perspective, his will, his good and right way for our lives. So this week, let's keep in mind 
that this crowd misunderstood Jesus. Now, we have that danger too. But when we understand Jesus, when we get it, we get his way for our lives, suddenly our lives become a whole lot better. So this week, I encourage you to pray that God would reveal himself to you even more through his scriptures and through his spirit, and that you would be responding as a humble servant who joyfully exalts Jesus every day of your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. Lord, you were deserving of this entire procession. As you were deserving of everybody in the world proclaiming you as king. And we know that day will come again. A day where you will be coming not just to Jerusalem, but the world. And we will all be shouting, Hosanna, Lord, you are king. But until then, Lord, help us to become more like you. Help us to be humble in our lives. Help us to understand you through the scriptures and through our prayers. Lord, help us always be putting you first and others second. Lord, we ask you in your name. Amen.